Well, our scripture reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This is found on page 737 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd invite you to take this one with you as a gift from us. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Paul. Well, good morning. Um, My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. It's good to see each of you this morning. And um, many of you know yesterday was the, the race to Unite KC, this uh, 5K first ever down, down truce, and it was a great day, and you know I had challenged Paul um, in that race, and, and I'm happy to report that uh, he didn't beat me. Um, he actually crushed me uh, in, that, in, that, in that race, and so um, good job, Paul. You know, when one person decides to train extensively and then someone else doesn't train at all, um, I, I learned firsthand the difference between training better and trying harder uh, yesterday, and trying harder doesn't just work if you haven't trained. So um, <clears throat> if you want to be a part of that race, uh, where it's going to be an annual event, and it was, it was just a fantastic uh, time yesterday. And so look for that next fall. I know many of you were there and um, participated in some way. If you didn't get a chance to do that, um, I think they have like the next four years worth of dates already booked. So um, next fall, I'll be looking for more info on Race to Unite KC. Well, as we begin to look at this text from Daniel, I want to pray and ask God to, to help us, and then we'll dive in together. Our Father in heaven, compel us all simply to take you at your word. Touch us with the Holy Spirit, we pray, and do not let us get away from your word without being caught by its promises and powerful joy. We pray this for our sake and for those whom we love. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, last week, as John mentioned earlier in the service, we began a new teaching series in the book of Daniel, which is in the Old Testament, the first kind of chunk of the Bible. And and we started talking about, as we looked at the book of Daniel, how our experience um, as Christians here in the 21st century in Kansas City is one where we increasingly uh, feel out of control. And we we talked about how Christians are are increasingly uh, marginalized and and pushed aside in our cultural context, and, and how this feeling of being out of control 
is, is a new one for many of us. And, and it's, it's a scary feeling for many of us to sort of feel in new ways the sense of, of being out of control. And while this is, is new for us, what we saw last week is that it's, it's not new for God's people historically uh, or Christians in, in other cultures or contexts or even Christians of, uh, in our own country with different um, experience have, have had this sense of being out of control for, for a, a lot longer than we have. And we talked about how we can, how we must learn from them. And so last Saturday, I spent about an hour on Skype talking with Gitachu. And Gitachu leads the 11th Hour Network, one of our missional partners in northeastern Kenya. And um, it's a, the 11th Hour Network is an interdenominational group of churches and church planners and pastors um, who work in areas that are dominated by Islamists who are openly and violently hostile to Christians. In fact, later this week, I had talked to Gitachi a week ago Saturday, and this the week I saw an article on the BBC that um, militant, the militant Islamist group Al-Shabaab killed six Christians in northeastern Kenya in an attack that was aimed to drive them out of Mandara town. That's a border town near Somalia. And when I saw that news, I texted Gitachu, and um, he wrote back, and I just said, were any of the 11th Hour Network pastors involved? Were they hurt? And he said one of them narrowly escaped death in that attack, and he wrote back, this was his text to me, he said, Dear Pastor Bill, as you know, the Lord has a way of intervening for us. During the night of the attack, the pastor's house was blown away, was, in, was on his way to our conference. They were hosting a conference in Nairobi, and, and by God's grace, this pastor was traveling already, and so he wasn't home at the time of the attack. And the Lord intervened through the conference, so he escaped death. Thank you for your prayers. All is well with us. Um, yet despite that violent God, that violence, God is at work, and, and hundreds and hundreds of people are hearing the good news of the gospel about Jesus and turning to follow him. And as I was talking to Gitachu on Skype, I, I asked him about how he helps believers face opposition and persecution there. And he mentioned so many things that are so helpful. I said, we're studying Daniel. What would you have to say to us as a congregation? Help us to understand how you've dealt with this kind of thing in your context. And he shared a lot of helpful things, which I hope to, to share with you in coming weeks as we go through Daniel. But one thing he said stayed with me all through this week. He said, we don't feel like we're being persecuted. We normalize it. This is just what it means to follow Jesus here. He says, we don't feel like we're being persecuted. We normalize it. This is just what it means to follow Jesus here. And I was so humbled in that moment because what we are facing is so relatively less extreme. But I, I was also encouraged because what I see in our brothers and sisters in Kenya and what I see in Daniel's life as well as we look at the story in the Old Testament is that there is a way to lose control, a way of being out of control without losing your soul that you can live in a context where you are not in control without losing your soul. And increasingly, uh, our convictions, our culture will collide, and, and it's only going to happen more and more. More and more, you and I are going to be placed in situations that force us to see marginalization, even if not persecution, as normal, as just what it means to be a Christian here. And we will be tempted to compromise in those moments. But there is a way to lose control without losing your soul. And this is really what the whole book of Daniel is about, but you see it so clearly in this kind of peculiar story we're going to look at this morning. And as we look at it together this morning, we're going to see that you can lose your name without losing your identity. 
that you can lose your freedom without losing your character, and that you can lose all your plans without losing your purpose. You can lose your name without losing your identity. You can lose your freedom without losing your character. And you can lose all of your plans without losing your purpose. So first we see this idea that you can lose your name without losing your identity. Last week we, we talked about the significance of Daniel and his friends, about the significance of their names being changed when they get to Babylon. You see, in this cultural context, naming was really important, and it, it defined who you were, and it was sort of a placeholder for all the hopes of what you would be, and it defined you. It's much more significant than it is today in our cultural context. And, and basically what happens here in this name changing in Daniel chapter 1 is that the Babylonians take these young Israelite men, really teenage boys, who have been deported from their home, and they're being trained to be part of the best and the brightest of their oppressors, and they make their names associated with pagan Babylonian gods rather than with the one true God of Israel. So, for example, Daniel's name, which means the Lord Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, the Lord judges, becomes Belteshazzar, which means Prince of Bel, which was a Babylonian deity, and so on with his friends as well. But that's just it. Daniel's name is changed, but he doesn't become Belteshazzar. They call him Belteshazzar, but he hasn't become Belteshazzar. And look at verse 8 where our story begins this morning. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And this whole episode is governed by verse 8, really the first three words of verse 8, but Daniel resolved it doesn't say Belteshazzar resolved. It says Daniel. You see, Daniel lost his name, but he doesn't lose his identity. He doesn't lose who he really is. Babylon may think of him and actively try to make him Belteshazzar, but to Daniel, he's still Daniel. He hasn't lost his identity. And this doesn't happen by accident for Daniel. It doesn't happen by chance. No, it says he resolves. The text doesn't say, and Belteshazzar wavered and went with the flow. No, it says Daniel resolved. But what does he resolve? The text tells us he resolved not to defile himself, specifically with the food and drink from the king's table. So what's going on here? What was it about the, the food and the drink from the king's table that would have been defiling to Daniel and to his friends? And then the short answer is simply, we don't know exactly. I mean, it could be that the food wasn't prepared according to sort of the Jewish kosher laws, but wine wasn't an issue of, of kosher, and so that doesn't sort of explain all of it. Um, maybe it was the fact that probably the food would have been offered to idols before it would have been given to, to Daniel and his friends as much of the food was then, but that would have likely been true of the vegetables that he asks to eat later on. Um, we'll see in the story. So we don't know exactly why. Whatever reason it was, it was a way for Daniel and his friends to protect themselves from the temptations of Babylon, 
Their distinctive diet was one way that they resolved to be distinct in a culture largely out of their control. And in so doing, Daniel rejects dependence on the king and explicitly relies on and trusts God in the situation. Daniel loses his name, but he doesn't lose his identity. The king, it says earlier in chapter 1, assigned. The king assigned that he should eat this food, but Daniel resolved. The king assigned, but Daniel resolved. Are you resolved? Are you resolved? You see, living in a world outside of your control is not permission to be passive. Living in a world that's outside of your control, it's not permission to be passive, hardly. If you're going to live in a world outside of your control without losing your soul, you have to be resolved. Resolved to be different no matter the cost. It's the only way that you're going to make it. The only way I'm going to make it is to be resolved. If you're going to live in a world outside of your control without losing your soul, we have to become more and more comfortable with being different in the best kinds of ways. We must resolve to be faithful in the smallest quietest things, so that in the moments of bigger testing and temptation, we're ready. So to train off the spot, so we're ready on the spot. And I was reminded of the significance of this a few weeks ago, is the difficulty, right, of, of making choices to be faithful in the small things, where, where little uh, impact is, is possibly going to be seen by other people. And it was in a moment where I was updating a spreadsheet um, that we were maintaining as a staff about how many meetings we as pastors had had with people about Reach KC before the um, kind of more public phase of the capital initiative. And I was updating that sheet, and I realized after I'd done it that I had miscounted. And so the number that I entered in the spreadsheet was actually higher than the number of people I had met with. And I realized that after I got home from work that day and I knew the spreadsheet report was probably already going to be presented to the team and I thought, well, it was a mistake. I didn't mean to do it on purpose. It makes me look a little bit better, it's not, but it's not that big of a deal. And I kind of about for an hour, I wrestled back and forth. Do I do something? Do I try to go and change it? And the spreadsheet's already probably locked. I can't edit it. And finally, no, I, I said, no, I'm going to pull up my phone. I made a comment and I said, hey, no, this number's wrong. It's a little too high. I miscounted the appointments. You see, we're, we're all faced with those moments, right? No one would have known. It wasn't an intentional thing. But it wasn't right. So resolve. Make a deliberate decision about how you're going to respond in those moments. It's essential to be resolved. Are, are you going to cheat on the test or not? Are you going to pad the sales report? Are you going to gossip about the other parent? Are you going to sleep with the person you're dating? You have to be resolved ahead of time. And Daniel recognizes this, and, and it's not only Daniel who, who knows this. I mean, increasingly, neuroscience demonstrates this importance of resolve, of determining ahead of time. Eric Barker of the, the Barking Up the Wrong Tree website, he, he points out that turning down fun distractions is hard. Resisting the urge to procrastinate is really hard. So he says, so take a second and deliberately decide not to give in. He says, I know that sounds way too simple to be helpful, but it's true. He says, neuroscience shows that pausing and taking the time to make a decision actually helps stop you from engaging in bad behavior. 
Neuroscience shows that pausing and taking the time to make a decision actually helps you to stop engaging in bad behavior. Resolve has to be done beforehand. We don't know yet. Daniel doesn't know yet how this is going to turn out for him. He doesn't know. He resolves and then he acts in faith, not knowing what the cost will be. You see, resolve, it makes us dolphins rather than jellyfish. I first heard John Piper use this metaphor. He says, he points out jellyfish, they just sort of drift right through the sea, and they're, they're kind of at the whims of the currents and the tides, and they can move around a little bit, but if the tide is strong enough, they're just going. But dolphins, right, they're, they're able to, to leap and swim against the current and dive and go where they need to go. If you want to be a dolphin leaping, gliding, swimming beautifully against the currents, you have to be resolved. One of the most resolved people in our country's history is perhaps the greatest intellect ever to be born on American soil, and it's Jonathan Edwards. When he was a young man, Edwards wrote out 70 resolutions that guided his life. I actually posted them on our, our Facebook page. If you want to read through them, you can go there and, and click on a link and read through them. They're amazing. And here's just the very first part of the first one. He says, Resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to the God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole duration of my life. And as a pastor, missionary, academic, president of Princeton, author, Edwards lived out these resolutions. So what have you resolved to? And not just in, in the sense of a New Year's resolution to, to eat less or to exercise more. I mean, those are fine. But what kind of person have you resolved to be? Who will you be? Who won't you be? What do you resolve to do when you fail? Because we will fail. What do you resolve to do in those moments? Resolve now before the challenge comes. Now, we said just a moment ago, Daniel resolves before he knows the outcome, before he knows what happens. But what does happen in the story? How does it turn out? Well, this is what we see as we turn to the next point here. We see that you can lose your freedom without losing your character. You can lose your freedom without losing your character. Now, this almost seems impossible, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like Daniel, he's making this resolution. He would we'd have to come out now sort of fighting and going down in a blaze of righteous anger against the evil empire of Babylon. But that's not what happens. You see, this call to be different isn't a call to self-pity. It's, it's not a call to arrogance or attack. Yes, we're called to stand out, but we're not called to be jerks about it. Because look at what Daniel does here. Verse 8 again, he says, Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And, and the chief eunuch, and I'm just going to call him the chief because I have this thing about not saying eunuch more than a handful of times a day. Um, the chief was the palace official in charge of this program. This program of taking these deported, uh, sort of exiled young men and, and turning them into Babylonian officials. And he's not crazy about this proposed diet that Daniel's putting forward. He doesn't love the idea. Why? Well, because he knows what we all are going to find out next week, 
that Nebuchadnezzar, his boss, is absolutely a brutal guy. I mean, he's like working for Kylo Ren. Um, it's a Star Wars reference. <laughs> but he's like way worse than Kylo Ren, okay? He's a, he's a terrible, terribly brutal boss. And Nebuchadnezzar isn't going to be exactly excited if he sees his prized Jewish captives looking peaked and, and withering away because all they've been eating is this vegetable diet. And the chief knows that he's going to get blamed if these guys aren't up to par. But verse 9 tells us that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief. And even though the chief rejects the plan, he says, I'm not, I don't want to do this. You know what it's like working for Nebuchadnezzar. Even though he rejects the plan, Daniel doesn't panic. He doesn't go on a Facebook rant. But he's, he's resolved. So he just tries another strategy. He goes to the guy in charge of the cafeteria and he asks him, hey, could we try something out for 10 days? And where the chief said no, the chef says yes. He's willing to try. And he's, this is what Daniel says to this, the guy in charge of the food. He says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed to you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And to be clear here, when you hear vegetables, if you're like me, you're probably picturing Daniel just sort of skipping the steak and then going to the, the salad bar. Um, like this is some kind of like health food diet. But the word for, for vegetables here is actually the same word that's used for seeds used for animal feed. This is not really like human food. It's not yummy veggies at the salad bar. It's kind of a grainy mush, really fit for livestock. I mean, I thought the whole 30 was hard. I mean, I only made it through the whole 24. But these guys want to eat this way for three years. That's like the whole 1,095. And in all of this, though, Daniel acts with gracious, winsome wisdom. When his initial ask is declined, he finds another way. He doesn't make a big deal about it. He just works a different strategy. But he's never angry or arrogant. He doesn't, doesn't stand on his rights and demand. Not that in his situation he could really do that anyway. He understands and respects those in charge of him. And he maintains his character even though he has no freedom. Daniel resolves to be different and he resolves to live graciously no matter the opposition. And if we want to be faithful in Babylon, we need to do the same. Daniel is soon to be one of Nebuchadnezzar's chief advisors as well as an advisor to the, the evil men who will rule after him. Emperors come and go, but Daniel, he outlasts them all. And he doesn't get there. He doesn't outlast them all by being a nightmare of a human being. He gets there through humble respect and service, even for people he couldn't disagree with more and who have been absolutely unjust to him and brutal to his people. And Rachel and I uh, talk with Lucy, and we tell her, you know, if you want something from mommy and dad, if you want help, that throwing a fit about it, whining, making demands, that those things, they, they never work. In fact, they're going to make us less likely to want to give you what you're asking for. But somehow we think as grown-ups that that will work with people we disagree with. If we just talk louder or we just get angrier, that 
somehow that will work, but it doesn't. And in every turn, we see Daniel's resolve to live otherwise. They can take his freedom, but they can't take his character. And third, we see that you can lose all of your plans without losing your purpose. You can lose all your plans without losing your purpose. Notice verse 21, the final verse of this chapter. It says, And Daniel was there, there in Babylon, until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, the reign of King Cyrus is still 70 years away from this moment. Daniel would spend 70 plus years in Babylon. He would die there. When Daniel was arrested by a Babylonian soldier as a teenage boy and deported, you see, every plan, every dream, every hope he had for his life was lost. Can you think about that at Daniel growing up? I mean, he was one of the best and brightest. He, was, he had a great career in front of him. I'm sure he dreamed about finding a wife, about having a family, all of that. And in an instant, he was taken by a Babylonian soldier never to see his homeland again. Every one of his plans was lost. But he didn't lose his purpose. God still used him for good, helped him not just survive, but flourish and seek the good of others, including first and foremost those who had been his captors, his oppressors. And look at how this turns out in verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who had ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And so it worked out, but that's, that's just the beginning. The experiment for 10 days worked, but look at how it ends at the end of the three-year experiment. This is how chapter 1 concludes. And as for these four youths, Daniel and his friends, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, which is going to be really important for next week. And at the end of the time the end of that three years, when the king had commanded that they be brought in, the chief brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke to them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel became the best of the best in Babylon. There's no one else like him. Ten, he's ten times better than any other one in his class. And he doesn't just serve one evil emperor or one brutal dictator. He serves multiple ones all the way to Cyrus. And he lasts 70 years, both the Babylonians and the Persians. He outlasts them. And we're going to see next week that God's people will outlast them all. See, he, and he didn't know that was going to happen, though. He simply resolved and then trusted God to manage the outcome no matter what the results. <laughs> or manage the results no matter what the outcome you see, all of us, every one of us here this morning has plans. We have hopes. We have dreams, right? Things we want to do, things we want to be, things we want to accomplish. And here's the thing. You can lose every one of those plans without losing your purpose, 
without losing your purpose to love God and serve others with all that you have in anywhere that you are, no matter how difficult the circumstances. So resolve to let God manage the results, no matter the outcome. You may have plans to get married, or, or maybe your marriage has, has failed. You may have dreams to have a certain kind of family or a number of kids or, or kids without health problems or addictions or whatever it might be, dreams of a certain kind of career. You may have all these plans, hopes, dreams, and all of those plans can fail, but you can never lose your purpose. Your purpose is secure. You are called to the common good, even in the most difficult circumstances that you wouldn't have chosen. Here's another part of Jonathan Edwards' first resolution. He goes on to say, Resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty, and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. That's the common good. And resolved to do this whatever difficulties I meet with. How many and how great soever. Resolved to be fulfilling this purpose of loving God, loving neighbor. Our purpose is to love God supremely and others sacrificially. And living out that purpose doesn't always lead to an outcome we like. Daniel dies as a captive in Babylon. He never goes home. He never sees his homeland again. But we can still be faithful Ask yourself, am I more committed to my plans or to God's purposes? Am I more committed to my plans or to God's purposes? Because sure, I don't want to lose my freedoms. I don't want to be marginalized. None of that is part of my plan. But maybe God's purposes are to refine his church, to, to force us to begin to live out what we say we believe and as the people around us continue to grow disillusioned, maybe we, his church, the local church, can step in and be a place of hope. A.W. Tozer once said that a scared world needs a fearless church. But a scared world needs a fearless church. May we be that church. And we can be. We can lose our names without losing our identity. We can lose our freedom without losing our character. We can lose all of our plans without ever losing our purpose, without ever losing hope. But how? Because Daniel helps us to see this. Just him helping us to see that that isn't enough. We need more than Daniel's good example than his inspiring story. We need someone who can actually do this for us, who steps in our place, who makes it possible and forgives us when we fail. We need Jesus. Jesus who lost everything so that one day in the new heavens and in the new earth, we will lose nothing. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples back when we were studying the gospel? If you've been with us a while, we were just in the gospel of Matthew for a long time, and a group of disciples are talking about the sacrifices that they've made to follow him. And do you remember how Jesus responds in that moment? He says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You see, Jesus really did lose everything so that in the end, no matter what happens, you and I will lose nothing. 
And instead, we gain everything. And while Daniel refused to eat at the king's table, a table that would defile and condemn him, you and I are invited to feast at the table of another king, a king who would purify us, forgive us, make us whole at the cost of his life. And this is what we celebrate each week in communion as we gather around the server and take the bread and dip it into the cup. We're celebrating the meal at that king's table. And so as we transition into that time of communion this morning, I just want to explain, if you're newer, how we celebrate that meal here at the Brookside campus. We have four communion stations around the room. We have two here in the back and two in the front. And if you need gluten-free communion elements, those are available at this station in the back on this side of the room. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community in a formal, official way to celebrate with us. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've feasted at that king's table and trusting him alone, then come and join us. Celebrate with us. Those of us here who are still in that place of trying to figure out who is Jesus and how do I follow him and is he really who he says he is? Again, just invite you to use this time to continue to, to think about these claims that Jesus has made and how he's called us to himself. Hopefully you find the Brookside campus to be a place of warmth and encouragement and a place where you can ask questions. Just use this time to maybe pray. Maybe that's not something you do often, but maybe pray and ask that God would help you to know him. See, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, the night before he would go into the greatest exile, the exile of death on the cross, separation from his father, he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. He said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's the bright hope of the gospel that changes everything. So come now to the communion servers as they come forward and taste and touch the good news of the gospel. Feast at the king's table, the king who forgives you, who loves you, who makes you whole. Come when you're ready.